70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته معكم صديقتكم كندا سليماني من الجزائر أبلغ من العمر 32 عاماً Hi, my name is Kenza Sleimani. I'm tuning in from Algeria. My ties with KBS World Radio's Arabic service date back to 2012. I found out about the channel from Korea by chance as I was searching for radio stations. Ever since, I've been tuning in to the news and other programs, and since 2018, I've been serving as an official monitor. KBS World Radio's Arabic service taught me a lot and helped me have a better understanding of Korea. I would like to applaud everyone at KBS World Radio for running an outstanding and successful channel for 70 years. Congratulations on your 70th anniversary, and I wish you the very best in the future as well. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Monday the 16th of January and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. President Yoon Suk-yeol has continued his state visit to the UAE, where he secured a $30 billion investment pledge into South Korean industries over the weekend. We'll have the latest updates in news briefing shortly. Late last year, the death of the so-called Villa King landlord left hundreds of tenants unable to reclaim their Chonsae housing deposits. We found out the latest on this case and the risks involving the Chonsae system for our in-depth today. And coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, Tennis star Kwon Sunu has emerged as the first Korean player to win multiple ATP Tour titles. Let's begin Korea 24. It's day three of President Yoon Suk-yeol's state visit to the United Arab Emirates, his first overseas trip of the year. On day two, in his first full day in the country, Yun held a very fruitful summit with the UAE President Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jango. So, President Yun Song Yeol and the United Arab Emirates counterpart Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan held a summit in Abu Dhabi on Sunday. Highlights of the meeting include a multi-billion dollar investment pledge by the Middle East country. Can you tell us more about that and the latest from the schedule? Right. On Saturday, President Yoon arrived in the UAE for the first state visit via South Korean leaders since the two sides forged diplomatic ties in 1980. On Sunday's meeting with Sheikh Mohammed at the presidential palace of Qasr al-Watana, the two discussed advancing special strategic partnership to the highest level. The UAE leader pledged to invest $30 billion in South Korean industries, including nuclear power, defense industry, as well as the hydrogen and solar power sectors. 
Representatives from some hundred South Korean conglomerates as well as SMEs accompanied Yoon. Thirteen MOUs were signed in line with the Sheikh's pledge. Scores more expected to be inked on Monday. The preliminary agreements include one between the KDB and the Mubadala Investment Company, Abu Dhabi's second biggest state fund, on joint investment in promising South Korean companies as well as a deal to partner on nuclear power facility construction projects in foreign markets. The UAE leader said major investment decision was made with confidence in the country's ability to deliver on its promises under any circumstances, uh, referring to their trust and faith in South Korea. President Yoon, via social media, highlighted the trust displayed by the UAE as well. And during a keynote speech at the opening ceremony of Abu Dhabi's Sustainability Week, President Yoon proposed that South Korea and the UAE expand bilateral cooperation in achieving carbon neutrality, that if there are special strategic partnership further extends to cooperation in achieving carbon neutrality, the two countries will be able to promote their leadership in the international community and create more opportunities for economic cooperation. He said the two sides can join hands in clean energy such as renewable energy, hydrogen as well as carbon capture utilization and storage or CCUS. And this is something that will enhance energy security as well as contribute to improving stability of the global energy market. You can also suggest creating synergy through cooperation in smart city construction. He promised us full support to ensure the UAE successfully hosts the COP28 summit. President Yoon will depart for Switzerland on Tuesday to attend the World Economic Forum in Davos. Right, so his diplomatic schedule continues Tuesday in Switzerland. On to some other headlines now. The South Korean government convened a meeting of ministries to check up on response measures regarding ongoing search efforts in Nepal following Sunday's fatal plane crash involving two South Korean nationals. Can you update us on this situation? Well, this is what we have. The meeting on Monday was presided by Second Vice Foreign Minister Yi Do-hun, the Ministries of Foreign Affairs, Defense, Transport, Interior, as well as the National Police Agency and the National Fire Agency were brought together. The foreign ministry vowed to continue to verify incoming info through the consultative body in cooperation with the Nepalese government and the South Korean diplomatic mission there, while seeking ways to support families of the two passengers. On Sunday, a Yeti airline flight traveling from Kathmandu to Pokhara crashed while approaching for landing. The Civil Aviation Authority of Nepal released a list of passengers, including two South Korean nationals with the surname Yu, reportedly a man in his 40s and his teenage son. Local authorities have recovered 68 bodies, 26 including a South Korean national was identified. The man surname Yu in his 40s reportedly uh, served as an army NCO or the military NCO. He was on holiday with his son. Um, the son, the teenager, reportedly remains unaccounted for for now. Search and rescue continue for a second day for four people that remain unaccounted for, and Nepal's prime minister convened an emergency cabinet meeting and formed a panel charged with probing the case, the cause, rather, of the plane crash, which is unknown as of now. Yeti Airlines canceled all flights scheduled for Monday while conveying condolences to the crash victims. Yes, our thoughts go out to the victims and their families as well. On to the latest surrounding allegations involving the main opposition Democratic Party chair Yi Jae-myung. Prosecutors have summoned Yi for his alleged role in the Hijangdong land development scandal. Charges include dereliction of duty and violating anti-corruption law. Can you tell us more? Well, according to the legal community, on Monday, the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office delivered the summons to appear on January 27th on charges of dereliction of duty and violating anti-corruption law. Prosecutors suspect Yi, while serving as the mayor of Songnam, helped private investors reap 440 billion won in profits from development projects, incurring losses for the city government. 
They suspect he facilitated the receipt of 42.8 billion won by his aides, including then-chief policy adviser Chong Jin-sang, and intervened in drawing his election campaign funds in return for business favors. The DP chief is also accused of either contributing to or condoning the leak of internal information by his aides to private investors regarding the Wire development project in 2013 that helped them win orders. Last week, prosecutors questioned Yi over allegations that he solicited hefty donations under the guise of sponsorships through local football club Sangnam FC in return for administrative favors. As mayor, he was also the chairman of the city-owned club. He flatly denied all allegations, accusing the government of politicizing the prosecution. Right, we'll see if he does decide to appear for questioning again this time as well. Meanwhile, meanwhile, in an unrelated case, prosecutors sought the death penalty and life imprisonment, respectively, for two suspects in a bank robbery and murder case that happened more than 20 years ago. On Monday, in a final hearing at the Taejeon District Court, the prosecution demanded the death penalty for Lee Seung-man and life imprisonment for Lee jong hak for allegedly shooting a bank employee to death and stealing 300 million won in Taejeon in December 2001. The weapon, a 38 caliber pistol used in the crime, has been taken from a police officer two months before the robbery. These two actually ram a police officer who was on patrol with a car just to steal the pistol. The two suspects were arrested on August 25th 2022, 22 years after the crime, after police matched DNA samples from masks and handkerchiefs found inside a car used in the crime and those recently found from an illegal game room in North Chungcheong province. The sentencing will be held on February 17th. Let's get a quick update on the pandemic situation now in Korea, specifically the latest on the indoor mask mandate. South Korea's Advisory Committee on Infectious Diseases is set to discuss this issue on Tuesday tomorrow. Can you tell us more? Well, in a press briefing on Monday, panel chief Chung Gisok said the mandate could be lifted soon and he projects the latest wave of the pandemic to end after an additional 2 to 3 million infections are reported in the country. And despite favorable domestic conditions, the chief advisor said it will be safest to further monitor external factors before making this decision. He also urged high-risk groups, including the elderly and those with weak immune systems, to get bivalent booster shots, warning that a mass mandate adjustment would expose them to more risks. In other news, scores of vehicles crashed in a massive pileup on an expressway in Pochon, Gyeonggi province on Sunday night, leaving at least one person dead and 17 others injured. Well, according to police and fire authorities, the crash occurred at 9.10pm local time near the uh, Chukseokneung Tunnel, that's a hard name to pronounce, on the expressway connecting Guri and Pochon. Around 40 vehicles estimated to have been involved in the pileup so far. The number may rise. Police say additional investigations are necessary to find the exact number as well as the cause of the accident. One woman presumed to be in her 40s was pronounced dead after she was taken to the hospital in cardiac arrest. Three men also sustained serious injuries and were moved to hospital unconscious. Fire authorities mobilized first-stage emergency response, dispatching 48 vehicles and 130 personnel to the scene. Numbers are continuing to rise as we speak. And finally, police now believe 16 people were behind a fraud scheme involving 1,139 multiplex housing and studio apartment units. Can you tell us more? According to a Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency official on Monday, 11 additional people, including realtors, have been booked on fraud charges in the lump sum Jeonse rental scandal. These suspects joined five others identified by the police earlier for their involvement in the case surrounding a landlord dubbed a Villa King 
who was found dead late last year, leaving hundreds of renters in deposit retrieval limbo. In a separate yet similar case, another owner of 240 housing units in Seoul was found dead on Jeju Island in 2021. The police arrested the head of a consulting firm identified by surname Shin as the main culprit behind the rental scam. Rental scam, rather. Since last July, police have investigated 119 such rental fraud cases and have so far referred 109 related suspects to the prosecution. Yes, we'll be talking in more detail about this uh, Villa King case and some of the debate that has risen over the failings of the Chunse system. Uh, that's coming up next. But first, we wrap up our news briefing here. Daniel, thank you for the updates today. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Late last year, Career24 covered the death of a landlord that left hundreds of tenants unable to reclaim their housing deposits. Dubbed the Villa King, the man had owned hundreds of properties at multi-family residential buildings, renting them under the Chunse system, Chunse leases. That's a system in Korea where tenants pay a lump sum deposit instead of monthly rent, and they receive the deposit back at the end of the lease. Subsequent investigations, however, have revealed that there is more than one Villa King and that the problem could be bigger than originally thought. Reporter Andrew Jung from The Washington Post joins us now to tell us more about this issue. Mr Jung, hello. It's uh, good to have you back on the show. Hello. OK, so we've talked about this incident on the show before, but can you remind our listeners of the background of the Villa King incidents? Can you walk us through how it came to the spotlight? Yeah, so um, I think... Uh, the Junze system here is pretty prevalent. Um, it's pretty common here, but it's not uh, well known outside Korea. Mm. But um, so uh, a lot of tenants here live under a system where you don't pay monthly rent, mm. but you pay a uh, lump sum deposit up front, which is often uh, somewhere between tens of thousands of dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's it's a big it's a big lump sum of money. Mm. Um, the upside for tenants is you don't have to pay rent. Right. Uh, the downside is you have to put up a lot of cash up front. The, the way this works is the landlord accepts this because they can use this huge amount of cash to either earn interest, invest it somewhere, and at the end of the lease, the landlord gives this lump sum cash back to the tenant. So mm. it's a system that's worked for decades. Um, and the upside for tenants is, again, you don't have to pay rent. So that's why... Tenants are willing to go through this sometimes by you know taking out loans at banks. So it's a system that's been in place for decades. It's it's worked generally. There has been problems, but mm. not problem like this where hundreds and thousands of people are just you know de facto cheated out of their rent money or, or deposits, right? So they don't get uh, their huge lump sum of cash back. Um, so the 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 way this came to the spotlight recently is because. You know, more and more tenants gradually realize that they might not get their money back, which is alarming, right? I mean, if you, if you if you imagine yourself putting up tens of thousands of dollars to a you know a certain person, and you learn somewhere down the road that you're not going to get it back, you're obviously going to be scared. You're going to be alarmed, mm. and you know, tenants learned this through other neighbors who had the same landlord. They warned each other, "Hey, you know, I might not get this money back. You might want to check in." Um, they learned it through 
uh, notices from the local tax authority telling them that the, the home has been seized uh, because the landlord has not been paying certain amounts of money uh, to the government. So this came gradually to the spotlight until everyone realized that a lot of people, like thousands of people, would be cheated out of literally a combined worth of you know millions of dollars. So uh, this is how it came to light. Uh, there has been problems with the Jonesy system, but not on a scale as this big um, before. Right. So this person, dubbed Villa King, mm-hmm. he had hundreds of properties. And one of the issues was the fact that he died as well. Now, mm-hmm. that's what, how uh, people found out when they tried to contact him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found out uh, from the police saying, actually, he's died. And we don't know when you're going to get your money back or if you can even get your money back, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so how... Then did this come about? So this was part of a, essentially a scam, right? A scheme. Uh, how does the Villa King scheme work exactly? How does a person without the actual funds get to own hundreds of real estate properties in the first place? So um, uh, this is this is where things get a little tricky, and where there are, or it turns out, there were a lot of loopholes. So the Junsi system, as I told listeners already, that um, you put up a huge amount of money up front. Um, and sometimes it's because it's a huge amount of money, it's equal to the property price. So the, the landlord might put that home up for sale. So if that home is worth, say, $100,000 and the Chunze deposit is 90000 a purchaser might only have to pay $10,000 for the $100,000 property because the Chunze tenant is essentially already paying for uh, 90% of the home price. Mm. The, the catch is... Because the homeowner now ha- has bought the, the new home, that person is liable to pay the $90,000 to the to the tenant when that tenant's lease is, lease is due. Right. Um, and it's usually the case for people like this Villa King, who, who bought up, raked up thousands of properties on cheap prices. They don't, he doesn't have that cash. So when, when the, uh, the deposits come due, that person doesn't have the money to pay all these people, and hence why... We're talking about this, and hence why people are saying, you know, I've been cheated out of literally my life savings. Okay, just for our listeners overseas who obviously might not be familiar with the system as well, because it is unique to Korea. uh, If the tenants are putting down such huge deposits just to lease a property, essentially, why would they not just buy it in the first place? What stops them uh, from uh, buying it rather than just leasing it? I think that's a fair question. Um, well, number one, uh, tenants might think this is an unattractive investment. They might just consider this home as a temporary roof to, to put up over their heads while they gather up more money to, to enter a new real dream home for them. That's number one. Number two, that uh, I think they might not have not, they might not have just known the fact that their landlord might have tax problems, might have financial issues where uh, a year or two from now, that person might not be able to pay back the deposit. So there could have been a, a imbalance of information between the tenants, the landlord, and the the real estate agent. Um, sometimes criminally, purposefully, uh, where the tenants were kind of kept in the dark intentionally uh, with the intent uh, to kind of keep them uh, out of the real you know uh, thing going on. Uh, and then number three, um, the tenants, even if they knew that there were issues like this, they could have taken out a calculated risk where, hey, if I'm insured, for example, by the government, even if this landlord is you know dishonest and this landlord doesn't pay back the money, I'll have the government pay back uh, the money that I'm owed anyway. Mm. So you know what? I'll just go ahead. Uh, that's number three. And then uh, that point, that last point about the tenants taking a calculated risk uh, put 
uh, puts into the spotlight another interesting point is uh, it's that uh, these scammers might have used government insurance to convince these tenants to kind of, uh, uh, in a way, uh, participate in their large scam because, like, they might have told the tenants, like, hey, even if I don't pay you back the money, <laughs> the government's got your back. So from these tenants' points of view, you know, they might have just think, all right, well, you know what? That person is right. I'm just going to get back my money back anyway, so why don't I just go ahead and just live in this place for a little bit and then move on? Uh, so I think uh, that that explains why these people might have just opted to to not purchase these homes, even if they're paying up a huge amount of cash up front. Right, we should stress that in most cases, it is fine. Most landlords are honest. It's just the very few. Uh, and recently, this Villa King incident has shown uh, it is this scam perhaps is growing bigger as well. But for most people, it is just a stepping stone, a step to get on the property ladder as well. That's how they view it. Mm-hmm. But aren't there meant to be safeguards for Chunse tenants? For example, there is a government-backed insurance scheme. Has that failed in some way here? Um, I, I think that's what definitely the tenants are saying, um, because, well, the insurance system, it's like any other insurance system. You put up, you pay your insurance money, you're, you're liable to insurance if something bad happens. And in this case, a lot of people uh, are experiencing bad things. And, and on, in theory, you would expect the government insurance system to be, to be functioning, right? But the problem is, number one, not everyone affected or not everyone that were uh, Hold or living in properties owned by this Villa King were insured. That's mm. that's problem number one. Uh, problem number two: uh, even if you are insured, your landlord is dead. And legally speaking, because that person is dead, the government insurer doesn't have anyone to go through uh, claims uh, and liabilities. Mm. And hence, the government insurance system can't pay these insured people their insurance money because the government insurer doesn't have anyone to go up to and hey, because you've done this, you now owe us a certain amount of money. Um, so. Legally, in terms in terms of this current system, the tenants now have to wait uh, anywhere between several months, a few years, essentially for uh, the relatives of this dead landlord to to say to tell the courts that hey, I don't want to inherit his wealth and whatever because by doing that, the relatives now would assume the liabilities that this dead landlord had, meaning millions of dollars of worth of security deposits, and obviously you would expect the relatives to decline now. You know, in in terms of common sense, you would expect that kind of process to take a few weeks, several weeks, a few months at most. But uh, in terms of uh, in terms of my reporting, it turns out that you have to go through this legal system and legal process right. through the courts, where it might take several years. So even if you are insured, you now are in a situation where uh, you have to wait several years to to get your money back, and hence, in the meantime. You're on your own, essentially. You have to find your new home. You have to find new cash. You know, you you could be going through hurdles and whatnot. So this is a big problem. I, I believe you can still live in that house, uh, but basically your money will be tied up. You can't really move anywhere because you won't be getting that deposit back. Uh, and that's obviously a problem for anyone who aspires to move to a new place, a better place, uh, or whatever. So for those who have paid into the insurance scheme, they will be covered at some point. They just don't know when they'll get it back. It takes some time. But there are many who, of course, did not take up the insurance scheme as well. And so they could really uh, be in trouble. What's particularly concerning is 
well is that, uh, as we mentioned at the start, the earlier Villa King's death turned out to not to be an isolated case, right? Mm. Right. So it turns out, and there were rumors that you know this this person didn't act alone uh, because of just because of the sheer scale of this whole thing. Mm. And it turns out, at least according to the police so far, meaning there has been no court convictions, there has been no rulings yet, so we can't say that this is definitive, but. Uh, according to the police and the investigators that have been kind of looking into this, they've now uh, they now say that there were dozens of people that were shaming and you know helping out uh, uh, all these people buy up these properties for their profit. So meaning uh, it might be the case. Emphasis on might because we don't have a you know again we don't have a conviction, we don't have a court ruling yet. It might be the case where uh, this dead landlord uh, dubbed the Villa King. Uh, might not only have not acted alone, but also he might have just been uh, the the figurehead and the nominal mm. person that that these uh, dozens of other people have kind of put up front to to work as like a front guy, uh, basically. So we're now in the position to to uh, having to wait for the police to kind of. Uh, go through their investigations but so far they've now they're now saying that again there are dozens of people that might have uh, been involved in this scheme right so it could be a far bigger scheme with many people colluding together possibly uh, the government has launched a task force to respond to the issue uh, they've held two rounds of briefings for victims uh, how else has the government responded so far what are they planning to do as well understand their president the interior ministry Politicians from all sides have pledged to try and tackle this issue as well. Right. I mean, and you would expect that, right? In a, in a democratic system, you, you're, you're, you're due to answer to voters. So if you're the president and the interior minister and the, the minister of transportation and land and whatnot, you are now in a position to take care of this mess because, again, just because of the sheer scale of this thing, um, I think it's natural for the president and all these senior cabinet ministers to weigh in. And some of the plans that they've offered is, you know, the, the plan to offer cheap loans to these tenants uh, free or somewhere between free and cheap housing to these people. Um, but uh, from what I've been hearing from the tenants and what I've been seeing in the in the local media is that the tenants aren't very impressed with the with the plan. Mm. I, I remember talking to one person um, as I was doing the story and she told me that how, you know, she she hadn't learned of this kind of, you know, government Q&A session until she called them and to ask about a different thing. And mm. she learned during the dialogue that actually they're going to have this Q&A thing uh, two days from now and, you know, and so forth. And right. she was not only, you know, obviously very uh, frustrated with that, but she was also more frustrated because she was actually one of the people that are kind of leading um, or in the position of leading these other tenants right. into this kind of uh, unofficial coalition to ask the government to, to take care of this. So um, a lot of frustration, a lot of... Um, uh, disappointment from these uh, tenants' point of view. And I understand there's also discussions, people questioning the whole Chonsei system really mm. at this point because uh, there are risks involved. Uh, people are saying that uh, perhaps it should, st this is uh, another sign that uh, it should be phased out. But uh, I believe that is part of, I guess, a, a bigger discussion, but one this uh, does, this situation does raise. Mm. And how has it all been received? by the public in more general as well, because for many, especially for younger people, this is something that they will think could have happened to me as well. Right. And um, I, I, I find, find it interesting that you brought up the, the, the future of the Shenzhen system here. I think uh, this kind of this sheer again, this sheer scale of this uh, alleged scam uh, puts into question whether or not people are going to put confidence into the Shenzhen system. Now, it worked for decades because 
before Korea became this wealthy, you know, developed country, it it wasn't right, and you needed a banking system or a, or a quasi banking system to kind of have a mechanism in place for people to save up money. And Junsei was one of those one of those methods, right? You would you would uh, be able to safely uh, put up tens of thousands of dollars and keep it somewhere safe, somewhere li- or reliable. And you would get that money back, or the, the at least the, uh, the the money without the interest. Um, but this kind of scandal puts that into to question, and hence the the question about whether people are continue, are going to continue to trust landlords with essentially again their life savings worth of money, which is up to several hundred hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Uh, it raises a lot of questions. Where do you see the situation go from here? How do you see the issue uh, panning out? Well, I guess again for the insured tenants, they're going to have to wait a few years, and um, and in a in a happy happy ending scenario, they're going to get their money back, albeit without the interest. Now, for the uninsured, the people who didn't have government insurance, they're going to have to wait uh, a lot longer. They're going to have to go through a way uh, much more uncertainty, a lot messier process, uh, and just wait, just rely on the government to come up with something smart, and and that's. Uh, that's a big if, and that's a big question. Uh, and again, in the longer run, again, there's going to be a question about whether or not we're going to keep this Chelsea system. And, uh, and and this scandal is going to be the evidence put up to argue against having this uh, stay in place. And uh, we, uh, my uh, my colleague Brian and I, as we were reporting on this, we we talked to a uh, real estate expert in Singapore, and that person talked about how you know tenants in Korea are, are forgetting about the lost opportunity costs or the, or the opportunity costs involved in the Chelsea system, which is by putting up a lot of money up front, you're foregoing the interest you could be earning off that money. And there's a lot of economic financial things that you're missing. Uh, and you're you're kind of hallucinating uh, just because you're not having to pay rent uh, on a monthly basis. And hence, you're kind of tricking yourself into thinking that you're saving up money, whereas actually you might not be. So again, in the longer run, there's going to be a lot of questions uh, being thrown into whether or not the Shenzhen system is actually uh, wise to, to maintain. Yes, well, it certainly has raised a lot of questions about the idea of the chances system, and that debate will continue, I feel. But uh, that will, of course, be too late for the victims uh, of the Villa Kings that we talked about earlier, uh, especially those who are uninsured as well. OK, we'll leave it there for today. We've been speaking to reporter Andrew Jung from The Washington Post. Thank you for coming in today and uh, briefing us on this issue. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 13.77 points, or 0.58% on Monday, to close the day at 2,399.86. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose by 5.07 points, or 0.71%, to end the day at 716.89. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 6.01 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,235.31. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment, where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Walter Lee joining us in the studio. 
Walter, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Zhang Ho. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you too. Okay, so let's go straight into our stories once again today, Walter. What do you have for us first? Yeah, some quite tragic news actually. So the South Korean Army has recognized that the death of a soldier during extreme cold weather training last week was a line of duty death. Now the army revealed its decision on Monday, saying it came to the conclusion as the private second class had died while training. Now the army said it will also uh, posthumously promote the deceased to private first class. Yes, uh, tragic indeed. What was the cause of death, Walter? Okay, so the military and police are still trying to find that out. Now, a military official said autopsy results found no evidence of foul play, adding that further examinations are needed to find the exact cause of death. Now, this soldier was found dead last Thursday after falling asleep in a tent installed for training on, on withstanding freezing weather. Right, so it is harsh weather training, but it's not so extreme that it would put one's life at risk. Mm. Usually, did the soldier perhaps suffer from any health issues before? Okay, so what we do know is that he had tested positive for COVID nineteen on January second. Uh, he was instructed to take part in the cold weather training last Wednesday, two days after his seven-day quarantine was completed. Now, it is said that the deceased wasn't feeling well from the day he was assigned to his unit. Health experts say that the fact that the deceased took part in a drill at a time when it can't be said that he fully recovered from COVID-19 could have raised the risk of the death. Now, experts noted that a person is not regarded to be fully recovered just because they finished their seven-day quarantine mandate. Now, they said it it is highly possible that the COVID-19 virus remains in the body and could become active once a person's immune system sharply weakens. For example, if the person takes part in an exercise in very cold temperatures. I see. So it could be COVID-related. The Mm. exact cause of death will, of course, need to be determined, but perhaps a we don't take COVID-19 seriously enough because yeah. we have gotten so used to it. Uh, hopefully, the authorities will have some answers soon. Let's move on. What's our second story about? Yes, yeah, so a bit of a lighter note. So Apple TV's Korean language drama Pachinko has been named the best foreign language series at the US Critics' Choice Awards. Now, the Critics' Choice Association announced this year's winner during the awards ceremony in Los Angeles on Sunday, which included the drama adaptation of Lee Min Jin's 2017 novel of the same name that traced the lives of a Korean immigrant family in Japan. Now, Pachinko beat eight other contenders, including fellow South Korean drama extraordinary attorney Wu. Yes, if I remember correctly, Squid Game won this award last year, right? Yeah, that's right. So this uh, this is the second consecutive year that a Korean language drama grabbed the best foreign language TV series title. It also marks the fourth year in a row a Korean language work has received an accolade from the Critics' Choice Awards following Parasite in 2020, Minari in 2021, and of course, Squid Game in 2022. Now, Pachinko, uh, which was released last March, previously won the award for Best Breakthrough Series Long Format at the 32nd Gotham Independent Film Awards last November. The drama is set to return for another season. Right, like Minari, Pachinko is a US production that still has roots firmly in Korean history and culture, of course. And so the show and its success has been warmly embraced in Mm. Korea. Uh, Did any other South Korean works or actors receive awards on Sunday? Uh, So I'm afraid not. The South Korean romantic thriller Decision to Leave, directed by Park Chan-wook, 
failed to win the Best Foreign Language Film category at the awards, with the honour going to India's RRR. The Critics' Choice Award, which honours both films and TV shows, are known to be one of the best barometers for predicting up-and-coming award ceremonies, including the Emmys. So all eyes will be looking to see if Pachinko can get another award in September. Right, unfortunately it seems the awards do not seem to be falling for Decision to Leave, despite its success at Cannes last year, but uh, momentum is with Pachinko for the Emmys, at least it seems. Okay, let's uh, move on to our final story for today. What else do you have for us? Yeah, so top K-pop girl group Blackpink will head to Paris, France next week to perform at a charity concert. The event's host and organisation called Foundation Hospitals is chaired by French First Lady Brigitte Macron. So... Blackpink is set to take the stage in La Gala des Pezjun, which will be held at the Zenith Paris Indoor Arena at 8pm on January 25th. Now, the Korean group is among world-famous acts that are set to perform, such as American singer and rapper Pharrell Williams and British singer Mika, among others. Yes, well, it sounds like quite an honour. Mm. Last week, we talked about the group being on a world tour, so uh, they'll be making a short trip to Paris then while on this tour. Yeah, that's correct. So the quartet is currently on the Asia leg of its Born Pink world tour. They will be taking part in a charity event between a concert in Riyadh set to be held this Friday and a concert slated for uh, January 28th in Abu Dhabi. The group, which first began touring last October, is scheduled to hold performances through to June. Now, the French First Lady was actually spotted at Blackpink's concert last month in Paris. Ah, okay. So maybe she was scouting them out or uh, there to invite them personally. Can you tell us a bit more about this charity that the event will be for? Right. So Brigitte Macron has been a chair of this foundation since 2019 when she succeeded Bernadette Chirac. So the foundation looks at improving the lives of healthcare personnel and also patients. Tickets for the up-and-coming concert are being sold at 16 stores of a top retailer, Care4, which is sponsoring the event. Each ticket costs 15 euros or some 16 euros it's quite cheap, actually. Careful plans to donate all the proceeds from the ticket sales to the foundation hospitals. Sounds like a worthy cause, and it looks like Blackpink is having a really busy start to the new year as well. Yes. That's where we'll leave it for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories, Walter, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. We continue on now to Monday Sports Roundup, our weekly update on the latest from the world of Korean sports. And for that, we welcome on the line once again sports reporter Yu Ji-ho from the Yonhap News Agency. Ji-ho, hello and happy Monday. Uh, happy Monday to you too. It's great to be here. Yes, we begin this week with tennis because South Korean player Kwon sun made history in Australia over the weekend. On Saturday, he won the Adelaide International, becoming the first Korean player with multiple ATP Tour titles. So, Ji-ho, he is essentially the most successful Korean tennis player now, right? Yeah, and uh, the future is very bright for him. Still in the mid-20s, maybe still hasn't hit his prime in his career. So, Kwon Sun-woo defeating Roberto Batista Agut of Spain in the final at the Adelaide International, the second edition of the tournament, 6-4, 3-6, and 7-6 in a tiebreak 7-4. It was a marathon affair, two hours and 42 minutes uh, for the main singles uh, uh, trophy. Uh, Kwon grabbed the final four points in the, ti- in the decisive tiebreak to knock off the former world number nine from Spain. 
Uh, Quan had won his first ATP title back in September 2021 at the Astana Open. And he's not the first one from Korea with more than one title on the uh, men's uh, tennis, top men's tennis circuit. Mm. Lee Hyung Tech from 2003, the only other winner from South Korea. And also, uh, remarkably in this tournament, Kwon was one of two lucky losers uh, actually getting into the main draw. He lost in the qualifying round, but entered the main draw after two players pulled out because of injuries. So he got the sort of the second chance, made the most of it. First uh, lucky loser to win an ATP title since 2018. And uh, he's hoping to uh, obviously build on this momentum uh, at the Australian Open beginning this week in Melbourne. Yes, indeed. Hopefully momentum is behind him, particularly after that rather exhilarating final, right? Right. You know, it was a scintillating Thursday, especially. Uh, very grueling. A lot of long rallies between Quan and Batista Gut. And Quan was down 4-3 to three in games, but broke his opponent and then held his serve to take a 5-4 to four lead. And then uh, Batista Gut responded to win the next game to draw even a 5-5. Five five. Uh, Quan held his serve in the next game, but Batista Gut did the same thing to send the match to a tiebreak. And Batista Good went up 4-3 to three on back-to-back aces, but he did not win another point the rest of the way. A couple of unforced errors gave Kwon a 5-4 to four lead, and then Kwon sent the forehand winner to move to a championship point and clinch the title when Batista Good, his backhand return went wide left. So in this match, Kwon had 11 aces, showing much improved serves, and also had 42 winners to his opponent's 23. Right, he has shown much promise, so it's uh, great to see him win another title. We certainly hope that there's uh, more to come as well. Moving on, we have another story of a male Korean title winner, this time in golf. On the PGA Tour, the Korean player Kim Shiu captured his fourth career title in Hawaii and his first in two years. Kim rallied from a three-shot deficit to win the Sony Open in Hawaii with some impressive shot-making. Jiho, how did it go down? Yeah, it went down uh, with eight birdies and two bogeys for Kim Jiu in the final round for a six under, six under 64, 18 under par in total, uh, defeating Hayden Buckley of the U.S. by one stroke uh, in Honolulu. And Kim Jiu began the day in the final round, three shots back of Buckley, but began the day with three straight birdies and ended with two consecutive birdies at the 17th and the 18th. And he chipped in from birdie from behind the green on the, on the 17th hole and then two party for an easy birdie. Uh, he was playing in a group ahead of Buckley. So he finished the 18, 18 on the par, uh, waiting for a potential playoff. Uh, Buckley had an up and down round, uh, missing a short putt for par at the 15th. Uh, he had a chance to force a playoff at the 18th hole, but he missed an 11-foot birdie putt after a mediocre chip from front of the green. So uh, Kim ji was able to celebrate his victory, first one since January 2021, and also first win since marrying Korean LPGA Tour star Oh ji in December. Uh, he's the second Korean win, second Korean to win this season after Kim Joon-hyung, or I guess Tom Kim, uh, back in October. Yes, so a good start of the year for Korean golf. Finally, let's get an update on a story we covered last week, and that's in women's volleyball here in Korea. The saga surrounding Hunguk Life Pink Spiders in the Women's V-League keeps getting more bizarre by the day. They've gone through multiple interim coaches already after head coach Kwon Sun Chan was fired earlier this month. So, Ji-ho, what's the latest here? 
Yeah, so there's indeed been a very strange turn of events. Uh, after Kwon Soon-chan was fired for not following orders from the ownership on lineup decisions, his top assistant, Lee Young-soo, uh, coached one game as an interim coach, and then he resigned. And former high school coach Kim Gi-jung was named new head coach, but he turned it down on actually last Tuesday. This was four days after the team made the announcement that he was going to be the new head coach. Uh, Kim Gi-jung said he didn't want to take over the team in such a turbulent situation, and I guess that's really understandable. So another assistant coach, Kim Dae-kyung, is currently the interim boss, and they've got a very small staff at the moment uh, with everybody kind of stepping down, quitting, and not coming on board. And the remarkable thing at this point is the team has gone 3-1 and one, uh, in four, game, four matches since their coach was fired. And they're pushing the top place. Ajahn the ENC is sitting within five points, uh, losing, them, losing to them in five sets last week. And Kim Young-kyung, their star, their best player, uh, missing one game, but they still managed to win that one over IBK. So, uh, you know, this whole controversy could not have a command award this time for this team. They're putting pressure on the first-place team. Kim Young-kyung was rounding the form after sort of an up-and-down start. And thanks to her, you know, they are the biggest ticket on the road. Uh, they're filling seats everywhere. They go away from home. Really the biggest ticket in the league. Uh, the singular reason why women's volleyball is so popular in this country, but yeah. uh, with all that uh, controversy surrounding their front office, their management, uh, just not a good look on this team. Yeah, so it seems the off-court issues haven't affected the on-court performance so far, but it remains a, a very uneasy situation, to say the least. OK, let's wrap it up there today. Jiho, we appreciate your time as always. Take care and we'll speak again soon. OK, you too. Thanks for having me. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea 24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea 24. Okay, it's time to finish up now, as usual, with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us in the studio. Richard, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, good to see you too. Okay, so what's caught your eye first for tomorrow? Well, it's about a documentary that is coming out in local theatres in South Korea on Wednesday. The topic is not one I know too much about, but maybe if you have seen Korean dramas, you may remember scenes where one of the characters visits the shaman. Mm. Lee article in the national section of the Korea Times sat down with Kwon Soo Jin, a 25-year-old shaman. They talk about the documentary A Girl Who Dreams About Time, which follows her life. Wow, okay. So, uh, yes, shamanism. It's uh, still a fairly popular religious practice in Korea. Mm. Uh, many of the one of the many of the roles they perform, shamans uh, essentially act as a sort of conduit uh, between ancestral spirits and deities, as such, to help those who are looking for guidance. Uh, but uh, yes, having such a young shaman, twenty five years old, yes. is uh, pretty 
rare. Uh, can you tell us some more? Uh, how did the idea for the documentary come about exactly? Well, the filmmaker Park Hyuk Ji approached Kwon to make a documentary and she accepted. She wanted to use this project to help break stereotypes that people have about shamans. And this project took quite a lot of time to make. Park filmed Kwon for seven years from 2015 to 2022. The article says that a girl who dreams about time portrays Kwon's effort to balance her split life as a shaman and a student. It starts when she was a teenager and goes all the way up until she graduates from university and becomes a full-time shaman. Wow, sounds fascinating. Uh, you mentioned that she wanted to use this project to help break stereotypes. Uh, yes. What type of problems has she encountered? Well, according to Kwon, people treat her like a criminal at times, like shamans harm people. One example she gave was when she overheard a group of women talking about marrying a shaman. One of the women said she was strongly against the idea because it would be a problem for their family. In the interview, Kwon said, I believe people should hold reasonable suspicion of this job. I just don't want them to look at us as if we're creatures from another planet. Yes, I'm sure there are sceptics out there. Uh, and traditionally, shamans have been looked down on Korean society as well, uh, despite the role they played. And that view will likely still uh, be trickled down, I guess, for, mm. for many. The film sounds very interesting, though. But in the meantime, we can check out uh, more in tomorrow's uh, Career Times with that article. OK, let's move on to the next story. What do you have for us? I chose Pat Yuna's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald. It's about rare hanji paintings that are being shown in an exhibition in Paris, France. They were made by the late artist Yoon Hyung-gun, and they have only been shown to the public a handful of times. Right, so when you say hanji paintings, you mean paintings on hanji paper, the Korean traditional paper, right? Yes, I do. OK, so can you tell us more about the artworks then? The article mentions that these unique paintings feature two colours, ultramarine and burnt umber, they turned into a dark and deep colour because there were many layers added to the hanji paper. The late artist once said that the traditional paper was the right fit for his work because even making hanji was like art. It felt warm and absorbed the paint well. Right, OK. And why was Paris selected as a city to display these rare paintings? That's because the late artist has a connection to the city. During the 80s, he and his family moved to Paris to escape the political turmoil that was happening in South Korea at the time. Many students and civilians died during this time, during uh, John Duhuan's military regime. Overall, it sounds like an interesting exhibition, and it will be shown in Paris until February 23rd. OK, so for those lucky enough in Paris, it sounds like a wonderful exhibition to check out. That's where we'll leave it. Uh, Richard, thank you for that, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we call it a day for today as well. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So do join us again then for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.